Well, good morning. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 17 this morning. A few years ago, my son, uh, like many little boys, I think he was about four at the time, he went through a superhero phase of his life. Those of you that have boys probably recognize this phase. He wanted to read about superheroes. Uh, He wanted to watch cartoons about superheroes. He wanted to pretend he was a superhero. Uh, And at times, he would dress up like his favorite superheroes. And uh, at one point, somebody gave him a Spider-Man costume that he wore all the time. So I would come home from work and Samuel would be dressed up like Spider-Man. I mean, from head to toe in a mask and the whole suit, the whole deal. And so one day I came home and he was dressed like that. And I said, you know, let's have some fun with the Spider-Man thing. And so we uh, created sort of a photojournalism book of what would it be like if we got a glimpse of Spider-Man at home after a long day of crime fighting. Uh, So we took a few photos, kind of like, well, let me turn this on. We took a few photos like this one. Uh, Here's Spider-Man sitting in his easy chair. And of course, he's reading DC comics about super friends. He's not one of the super friends, but you know, continuing education. Uh, We, uh, Took photos like this, eating corn, right? Spider-Man has to eat. Spider-Man probably, I figured, has a, you know, a sensitive side. So here he is playing the piano. Uh, and of course, he's got places from time to time to go. So here he is getting into his seat to head out for, you know, who knows, some sort of crime-fighting adventure. Uh, we had a blast doing this. And uh, one of the reasons that I enjoyed it so much is because, of course, it doesn't fit with your typical image of a superhero. Uh, when we think of a superhero... They put on the costume because what they want you to see is not the ordinary nature of their lives, right? What they want you to see is all of their power and all of their glory, right? So they put the costume on to veil their ordinariness and display their glory. Now, when we look at the New Testament, and especially when we look at uh, the the Gospels, uh, Jesus actually seems to do the opposite, right? So Jesus, in fact, wears a veil of sorts that, that hides or conceals all his power and his glory from us. Uh, so uh, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, if you ran into Jesus walking along the road, you would not have noticed anything out of the ordinary about Jesus, He would have looked like just a normal guy. In fact, Isaiah 53, the great prophecy of the coming suffering Messiah says, look, there's nothing in his appearance that attracted us to him. Most people did not understand that Jesus is fully God as well as fully man, because most of the time he looks like an ordinary guy. Right? If you look at Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus humbled himself. He took on human flesh. He added human flesh to his Deity. Now, because of that, I think one danger that we face, one temptation we have, especially in our culture, is because of the humility of Jesus, we forget about Jesus' deity. We forget about all his power, right? So if you look at popular conceptions of Jesus, they tend to be a Jesus who is somewhat less than all-powerful. 
They tend to be a Jesus who is more our pal than our God, right? I did a Google image search this week uh, for Jesus. I just typed Jesus in to see what were some of the top results. Here was the number one Jesus picture in my Google image search. Now, uh, it's a well-drawn photo, I suppose, but there's nothing about this Jesus who looks threatening in any way. Uh, it's interesting that he has blue eyes. I don't know if you can tell that from there. And his hair is almost blonde. Uh, Certainly, Jesus would not have looked like this. But what struck me more was just how nice he looks. Right? And we see images like this, and it's not that they're bad, but they're incomplete. Uh, Our favorite passages that we quote in our culture are things like Jesus saying, Do not judge, lest you be judged. And by that people often imply that Jesus does not have the same moral standards, perhaps, as God the Father, that whatever you do is okay, right? We do not quote passages like, I have come to bring a sword and not peace. Uh, We do not show images of the Jesus of Revelation 19 coming out of the clouds with a sword emerging from his mouth, treading on the winepress of the wrath of God, in a robe dipped in blood, with a voice coming from heaven, saying that all of the birds of the air should eat the flesh of God's enemies. Right? That wasn't on the flannel boards in Sunday school (laughs) when we were growing up. We prefer to think of a soft and gentle Jesus. Right? But it's easy for us to forget that Jesus is fully God as well as fully man. So as we look at Matthew 17 this morning, we're going to see a concept uh, that I, I really want to drive home. Jesus' goodness does not diminish his godness. Now I realize godness is not a word, but it's to help us remember this concept. When you're preaching, you can use real words if you want. Jesus' goodness does not diminish his godness, right? The, the two go together. Uh, but likewise, Jesus' Godness does not diminish his goodness, right? So here in Matthew 17, what we see is this moment where Jesus, in a sense, he pulls the veil away. And just for a moment, he allowed a few of his disciples to see all the glory of God. Actually, not all the glory of God, some of the glory of God. And it frightened them so much that they hit the dirt, right? Matthew 17 is what we call the transfiguration, where we see Jesus not merely as a human being, but as God in the flesh. And so we begin to recognize, right, as C.S. Lewis would write in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's not safe, right? But he's good. I don't know how many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which Mr. Beaver has that great dialogue with Susan and Lucy, and they're asking about Aslan, the king of the jungle who represents Jesus. And Susan and Lucy are a little bit afraid to meet this lion. And Lucy says, I'm afraid to meet a lion. Is he quite safe? Right? And the beaver says what? It says safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. That's what we see in Matthew 17. We see the power and the glory of Jesus as the Son of God. But we're also going to see how good he is, that he will reach down and draw us near because of his grace and his goodness. And when we get to the end of Matthew 17, all of us hopefully will come to a place where we say, I want to know Jesus, but I want to approach him with reverence and awe and respect. 
Because in Jesus, the God of the universe is drawing us near. To say your sin need not separate you from God. But because of Jesus and God's grace, you can come near. Right? That's the beautiful truth that we see in Jesus. Fully God, fully man. Look with me at Matthew chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. The first thing we see in Matthew 17 is that everything God is, Jesus is. Everything God is, Jesus is. All of the glory of God is resident in Jesus. All the holiness of God is resident in Jesus. All the love of God is resident in Jesus. Now it's interesting, because Jesus puts on human flesh, we don't see all of the attributes of God fully displayed at all times in Jesus. That's not because Jesus set aside his deity. Instead, it's because while he was in his earthly ministry, Jesus voluntarily chose not to exercise some of those attributes to their fullest. So that's why in Matthew 24, for example, you see Jesus saying, look, no one knows the day or the hour of the son's return. Not even the son knows it but only the Father. And you say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean Jesus is not omniscient like God? No, it doesn't mean that. It simply means that in his earthly ministry, Jesus said, I choose to depend on the Father and not exercise all the privileges of my deity. That's what Philippians 2 is getting at. He adds humanity, but he does not subtract his deity. About 20 years ago, my older brother walked into a Borders bookstore in Plano and began to look at some books on the shelf. And while he was looking at the books on the shelf, he looked over to his left and right next to him, there was a man standing there. Now this was December, it was a rainy day, man standing inside with his sunglasses on, trying to look inconspicuous. And by trying to look inconspicuous, he looked more conspicuous. So my brother took a second look and he realized the man standing next to him was Don Henley, the uh, singer from the Eagles, one of the founders. Some of you know who that is, some of you do not, but uh, famous rock star standing right next to him in Borders. And so my brother looks over and he says, excuse me, Mr. Henley, thinking maybe he can get an autograph. At which point Don Henley turned and he said to him, right now, my name is not Don Henley. I'm just a man looking at books, right? And turned back around. My brother walked away. You know, I've thought about that story from kind of an ontological perspective over the years. Right? And here's what I've come to. He was still Don Henley. Right? The reality is that just putting on sunglasses doesn't change the actual essence of who you are. 
You are who you are who you are. He could put on a hat. He could put on a coat. It doesn't matter. You are who you are. Saying you are not someone does not mean you are not someone. His essence doesn't change because he changes his external appearance. Right? Jesus puts on humanity, but his essence as God never changes. Everything God is, Jesus is. And we see that here in Matthew chapter 17. We see that everything God is, Jesus is. There's there's a lot of parallels between this passage in Matthew 17 and Exodus chapter 24 verses 12 through 18. In Exodus 24, you see Moses going up onto Mount Sinai to meet with God. And God had uh, given the law to the people and now Moses is meeting with God. And it's interesting, it says after six days, just like at the beginning of this passage, after six days, God speaks to Moses out of a cloud. And when Moses came down from that mountain, we'll talk about this, he actually shone with a reflected light that was the glory of God, right? And here in Matthew 17, we have the disciples meeting with Jesus, where? On a mountain. What do they see? The glory of God. From where does God speak? He speaks from a cloud, and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, here's the twist in this passage. It's not just that it's another theophany like in Exodus 24. The real twist is that this time Moses is there again, right? But this time Moses is not there primarily meeting with the father. Moses is now dead and gone and in God's presence, but Moses returns to meet with Jesus. And just as he saw God on that mountain, He sees God in the person of Jesus on another mountain in the first century. And with him is Elijah. Moses is the representative of the law, the one who gave the law. Elijah is the great representative of the prophets who called the people back to a pure worship of the one true God. So the great representative of the law and the great representative of the prophets are standing on this mountain pointing to Jesus. And Luke tells us they were discussing Jesus' upcoming death and how it would glorify God. Because everything God is, Jesus is. Jesus is glorious as God is glorious. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and it kind of carries the idea of significance or weight, right? But often when you talk about the glory of God in the Old Testament, it's reflected in uh, images of light, right? God shines with glory, right? Men, uh, sometimes tell your wife, you look glorious, right? What are you saying? You glow, right? Don't say shiny. Say something like uh, glorious or radiant or bedazzling. What does it mean? You look such that I am compelled to look because your beauty and your greatness draws me in. Right? When we talk about the glory of God, he shines with this radiance that no human being has. Again, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he shone with the light of God. So much so that the people said, Moses... Put on a veil because we can't stand that close. And so he did. Jesus doesn't shine with a reflected glory. Jesus shines from within. It says he's transfigured and they see the glory of God. John, in John chapter 1, many years later would write this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. It never really hit me until this week that it's quite likely John is remembering this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Right? Peter would remember it later in 2 Peter chapter 1. And he describes this event and he says, we saw it, we witnessed it. We heard the voice from the heavens say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he says, because of that, we have the prophetic word made more sure. In other words, we trust all of God's promises in Jesus that Jesus is coming to bring a kingdom. John remembers we saw his glory as of the only son from the father. Jesus carries within him the glory of God, all the significance, all the weight of God. Jesus is holy. Right? Again, it's, it's no coincidence or side matter that the people who show up are Moses and Elijah. The law of Moses gave to the people the holy standards of God. And we often think, you know, there's this disconnect between the holy and just God of the Old Testament and the kind and loving Jesus we see in the New Testament, right? But right here we see there's no such disconnect. Moses comes and he says, all that I was talking about in the law essentially points to Jesus. Elijah, who called the people to the worship of the one true God, says, this is him. You worship him. There's no disconnect. Everything Moses and Elijah we're doing leads up to this moment so that all the holiness of God resides in Jesus and Jesus agrees with all the holiness of the Father. Jesus is glorious, Jesus is holy, and Jesus is loving. Perhaps the most poignant moment of this passage is after the voice comes from the heavens. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And they hit the dirt, these disciples. And Jesus walks over and he touches them. And he says, get up. Don't be afraid. Right? You come in reverence, but by all means, get up. Don't be afraid. Be in my presence. And he displays his grace to these cowering, terrified disciples who have realized they're in the presence of God. And again, there's no disconnect here between Jesus and the God of the Old Testament in terms of love. When God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and his glory passed by Moses, this is the first thing that Moses heard. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and what did he say? The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And then he does go on and talks about how God will also punish the guilty. But here's where he begins. I am a loving, compassionate, gracious God who wants to know you. All of that resides in Jesus. Some of you may have read the Mark Twain novel, The Prince and the Pauper. Uh, The Prince and the Pauper is a great story of two young boys who trade places. One is a peasant or a pauper in England. The other is the crown prince of England. And by hapstance, they end up trading places. Right? There was a modern day version of this in a movie called Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Right? But the prince and the pauper came first. And what happens is they end up trading places. And all of a sudden, the crown prince of England, nobody believes it's him because he's dressed in rags. And they look a lot alike. And the little boy who was a peasant now is in the palace. And nobody will believe he's not the king. But the reality is that that whole time, that little boy on the street was the king. His identity did not change. Technically, he still had all the powers of the throne at his disposal, even though nobody recognized it. 
And that's what we see with Jesus. When he is in his earthly ministry, most people don't recognize who he is. But here he pulls back the veil just a little bit. If he pulled it back all the way, everybody would die. He pulls it back just a little. Say, this is who I am. And what the disciples begin to realize is that we are standing in the presence of God in the flesh. Because everything that God is, Jesus is. But there's something else. Not only is he one with God in essence and substance, he's also one with God in purpose. That everything Jesus does is something God intends. There's a part of this uh, passage that I haven't talked about yet. And that is what Peter does. All right, as the glory of God is shining through Jesus and Moses and Elijah shows up, Peter being the man of action that he is, Peter says, hey, you know what? It's really good for us to be here. I'm glad we're here, Jesus. I've got a plan. Right? He says, we're going to build some tents. I'm going to make one for you. I'm going to make one for Moses. I'm going to make one for Elijah. Now Luke says, Peter said this because he didn't know what he was talking about, right? Peter is just talking. Because Peter acts often before he thinks. And so he's, he's tempted to look over at James and John. Come on, boys, let's grab some logs. And they begin to build tabernacles. Right now, what Peter is probably thinking about at this moment is the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, today, you might hear it referred to as Sukkot. It's a Jewish feast, one of the three pilgrimage feasts. And it was meant to commemorate how God led the people in the wilderness after they left Egypt and preserved them in the wilderness until they went into the promised land. But as you look throughout the prophets, especially in Zechariah 14, what you see is that in the coming kingdom, when the Messiah comes, it says the people will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in peace and safety and all of the nations, including the Egyptians, will come worship God around Jerusalem and they will build their tabernacles. And it says, I myself, God himself, will dwell among you. I will build my tabernacle among you. And Peter is thinking, this is it. The kingdom is here. Let's put up some tents and we'll stay right here. But as he is talking, a voice comes from the heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter, you don't have the talking conch right now. It's not your turn. Listen to Jesus, right? Because what Peter had to realize was that before the kingdom came, there was a series of events that had to happen that were consistent with God's plan. And in fact, Jesus had already told Peter this back in chapter 16. He says, look, I have to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the grave and I will rise after three days. And what did Peter say? No, no, he rebuked Jesus. He said, no, that's not gonna happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. All right, so Peter goes from this great confession of who Jesus is to Jesus saying, you're aligned with Satan because God's interests are not only to display his glory, but also to draw people in. And in order to draw people in for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life, I have to go to the cross. There is no division between my purpose to go to the cross and God's purpose for salvation. Jesus and the Father, are hand in hand in purpose. Uh, any of you gentlemen who have uh, children, maybe you've experienced this type of scenario. You are in your home and your wife is out of the house and the kids come to you and they say, Dad, can we have ice cream? And you say, that sounds great. 
So you get out the ice cream, ice cream for you, sprinkles, chocolate fudge, you're dishing it out. And right as they are in the middle of this beautiful feast, your wife comes home and says, what are they doing? You say, well, they're eating ice cream. She says, I told them they couldn't have any like an hour ago. Right. And, and what's the next conversation you have to have? Children, if mom has told you no, that represents the interests of dad. Right. In more than one way, because now we all in trouble. Right. Mom's purposes and dad's purposes are aligned. You don't appeal to dad where mom has rejected your appeal. We are one in purpose. The father and the son and the spirit have the same intention, including Jesus going to the cross. Right? This was confusing for the disciples because on the way uh, down the mountain, they start asking all of these questions. All right, we're going to talk about that in just a minute, all these questions about Elijah. All right, but John thinking about this connection between the Father and the Son, would write this in John chapter 14. Philip, one of the disciples, said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, if I've been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Jesus says, everything I do, I have been commissioned by God the Father to do. Right, so on the way down the mountain, the disciples begin to get confused because first of all, they're walking down the mountain, right? Peter, just a minute ago, had thought the kingdom is here. So they start asking these questions about Elijah, right? As they're coming down the mountain, verse nine, Jesus commanded them saying, okay, tell the vision to no one until the son of man has risen from the dead. Now that triggers in their minds, oh yeah, Jesus keeps saying he's going to die. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? What they are thinking of is Malachi chapter 4, the final words of the Old Testament. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. They're going, okay, Malachi says that Elijah has to come first, but we're walking down a mountain. Uh, Elijah was up there for a minute, right? But nobody has been restored to God. Nobody's been restored to one another. Why is your kingdom not coming right now? And Jesus answered and said, verse 11, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah to proclaim that the Messiah was here to pave the way and the people didn't listen. And so Jesus tells them the only way to restore hearts is for the son of man to die for sin and to rise again. And then we'll come back in a glorious kingdom. But Jesus is telling them, this is God's plan to display through Jesus, his glory, as well as his love and salvation, right? That's the good news of the gospel. You can know the God of the universe because Jesus took on human flesh, lived among us and died for us and rose again. And all who believe in him are granted eternal life and the opportunity to know God. All that Jesus does is something God intends for him to do. 
the disciples began to learn that. A lesson that's hard for us at times to comprehend. Everything Jesus does, God intends. And because of what Jesus does then, everything we need to be, Jesus can make us. Everything we need to be, Jesus can make us. As the the disciples were coming down the mountain, I have to think that they're wondering, okay, why is the nation so disconnected from God? Why is it that people are still rejecting their Messiah, right? What we need, we need to know him. We need to have a relationship with him, but we cannot because of our sin, right? If you look at the Old Testament law, all of the people had to stay away from the mountain where God was giving the law to Moses. In fact, God says, look, if they come near Mount Sinai and touch it, they will die because I am holy and you are not. Only you, Moses, As they worshiped God in the tabernacle and then in the temple, the glory of God resided in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. And the only person who could go in once a year under strict parameters was the high priest. If anybody else set foot in that Holy of Holies or treated it as common, they would die. You could not approach God's holiness because you were sinful. And the holiness of God juxtaposed with the sinfulness of man meant if you get too near you'll drop dead. But then Jesus comes and he veils all of his glory in human flesh and he comes near to us and he says, give me your hand. Don't be afraid. You can draw near. Hebrews chapter four, the author of Hebrews would say this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need to know God and Jesus paves the path because he is fully God and fully man and he fulfilled God's intention to pay for our sin. But we also need to be transformed, don't we? We need to know Jesus. We need eternal life. But we also recognize that the way we think, the way we act, the things we do are still wrong. We want to represent, to reflect the glory of God. Jesus shines the glory of God because he is God. Moses reflected the glory of God because he was in the presence of God. But we cannot do that in our sin. And so here's the great thing. All that we need to be, Jesus can make us. When you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I, and I love this. I love that this may be my favorite part of this connection in this sermon. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. This is the same word as Matthew 17, where Matthew says Jesus was transfigured, transformed, metamorpheo. We are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Right Here's what happens. Because Jesus died and rose again, our sin is taken out of the way, and now we can become the temple of God's spirit. And now he transfigures us from our ordinariness into people who can reflect the character and the glory of God. We aren't God, but we can reflect him. And so we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, there was a show on TV called What Not to Wear. Some of you uh, may have watched it. I may have watched a couple of episodes with my wife. Uh, 
The premise of what not to wear was they would find somebody who dressed very badly, right? All of their friends, and I don't know what kind of friends these people were, but all of their friends would nominate them and be like, that person is not only one of the worst dressers in our group of friends, we believe that she is one of the worst dressers in the United States of America, right? So they would nominate her to go on this show and they would get together and they'd, they'd go, congratulations, you dress terrible, right? And what we're going to do is we're going to fix you, right? Over the course of the next hour, we are going to transform your appearance. So they would give her $5,000. They would let her go shopping. They hired experts. They would do her makeup. They'd do her hair and they would transform everything about her external appearance. And at the end, they would have this uh, great reveal where all her friends would go, yes, you look like a person that we want to be around now, right? And that was the kind of climax of the end of the show every week. And I thought, man, that's just so great. But then I always wondered, I always thought, but what happens when the helpers are gone? Right? What happens when you don't have $5,000 still in your pocket to go buy new clothes next year when those clothes wear out and you don't have a professional makeup artist or hair stylist? If you're like me, you would regress, right? The beautiful thing about the transformation of the Spirit is he never leaves. For those who know Jesus Christ, he he never leaves. And so it says we are being transformed from glory to glory, to glory, to glory, until the day we see Jesus Christ. And there on that mountain of transfiguration, Jesus says, this is the glory I have as the Son of God. And he offers, look, don't be afraid. Come near, receive the forgiveness I provide, and then receive a taste of the glory of God living in you. Everything you need to be, Jesus says, I can make you. That's the good news. We need to know God. We need transformation. As we close this morning, a couple of thoughts. First of all, we can approach him with confidence. Jesus came and died and rose again to draw us near to God. He is the living temple of God. And he says, God can dwell in you, right? To receive mercy and grace in your time of need. You struggle with sin. You struggle with doubt. You can approach him with confidence, knowing that he says, no, you don't have to be terrified, but come near. But we also approach with reverence, recognizing this is no mere man, but Jesus is the Son of God. He is everything God is. His Spirit lives in us and we approach in reverence. I wanted to offer a thought this morning about how we can approach him in reverence. I think one way to do that is to fill our minds and our hearts with songs that speak about the greatness of Jesus Christ, right? Not only songs that speak of his love, although those are critical, not only songs that talk about Jesus as our friend, but songs that talk about how Jesus is God, how Jesus was there at creation. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and reflect on that type of music. Let me offer just a few, and this is just a small sampling of some I've been listening to recently. All right, the, the new album from Passion Ministries is called Worthy of Your Name. The title song, Worthy of Your Name, it, it lists all of these names of Jesus, that he's the author and the maker and the creator and how great he is, and he is worthy of the name of Jesus, the Son of God. 
Um, Ross King, our friend, we know how this thing ends. He actually has a song on that album that's called He Is Not Safe. And he explores that theme. He's not safe, but he's good. Uh, Songs 2, the reason I have volume 2, I mean, you know, by volume 1. But on volume 2, there's a song by Rich Mullins called The Love of God. And there's a line on that, the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God. It's a little scary, but it's beautiful. You want to draw near, but you draw near in reverence. And then for those who love hymns, Fernando Ortega, uh, there's a song on this hymns of worship called Jesus, King of Angels. It's a very soft sounding song, but the lyrics speak to the power of Jesus Christ as he leads us in God's glory and love. So we approach him with confidence, but we approach him with reverence. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word this morning and this time to study it. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Thank you that because of Jesus, we can approach you in confidence, boldly, knowing that because of the grace of Jesus, we will not die in your presence, but you want us to live in your presence. We praise you that the Spirit of God lives in us and is transforming us from glory to glory. Father, I pray that we would be faithful representatives of your character, of your glory, of your love. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.